Well, this morning, uh, we are going to take a little bit of a break from our study in the book of Romans. Uh, We'll actually resume Romans after winter camp. We're about to jump into Romans chapter 8, and we figured with people being out of town for Christmas, and then New Year's, and then we have camp, it'd be better to save that important chapter for after camp and spend a lot of time on it. And so in the meantime, what I'd like to do this morning is I want you to take take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to look. I know there's a lot going on this week as you are finishing up those assignments that are due that I'm sure you've been fastidiously attending to for the past several months back when they were assigned. And as you wrap up school, I know there's a lot going on. I know next week there's a lot going on with time off and travel and visiting family. And so I thought... This morning, as we take some time to look at other portions of God's Word, it'd be good for us to once again look at Christ and to look at our Savior. If you're new, Christianity is not a religion that's based on a system, a philosophy, a program. It's about a person, and the person that's at the central of it is Jesus Christ, and we'll look at Him today. Mark chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at verses 30 to 56. The Word of God reads, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. He had just sent them out to minister the word. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and it cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, 
it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is God's word regarding his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning, thankful for the time now we have to look at your word, to consider your son. Lord, it was you who said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We want to see Christ this morning so that we might be changed, that we might see him in his glory and have courage and hope in the lost world, that some here would even begin to know Christ for the first time and would turn and place their trust in him. Thank you for this time. We pray now that you would help us to be undistracted and that you would help us to gaze upon Christ and see his glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The year was 1939. And though it had not officially begun, Europe knew that they were on the brink of war. Just 20 years earlier, the Great War, as it was called, had ended. But as the German war machine was once again being built up, and they were only days away from invading Poland, Europe was on the brink of battle. And though many were nervous, The people of England definitely knew that they would be thrust in the battle. They knew what war meant for them. And so the Ministry of Information began a home publicity campaign. They began to make various posters to try to boost morale. Remember, they're not using any sort of uh, Twitter hashtags in this day. No no, uh, hashtag, we're in this together or anything like that. And so they made posters, posters that said things like, Freedom is in peril. In peril, Defend it with all your might. Another poster, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. Again, these are meant to boost morale, to give them hope. And perhaps the most famous poster that you know of today is the one with the crown in the middle, and it says, keep calm and carry on. Have you guys seen this poster before? Some version of it, keep calm and carry on. It's It's been uh, reused again today, and now there's also plenty of parodies of them. So you could find Keep Calm and Have a Cupcake, okay? Uh, Keep Calm and Fake a British Accent. These are all good options in life. The funniest thing is these these posters didn't work. They were taken down quickly. Many found them offensive, uh, much like the tweets that our celebrities try to send from their yachts. Um, But they were designed to give hope in dark times. Where do you go for hope? In dark times. Christmas is a season of hope, right? It's, it's a season where we're supposed to have hope for the future. But where do you go when life gets difficult? Where do you place your trust in sickness and in trials and in isolation? Where do you look? What is your hope in? You could probably already guess that this morning I'm going to say that we find hope in the Bible. But that hope is not just found in some sort of good saying, some sort of motto, some sort of pithy statement we could put on a poster. That hope is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were to look at the Gospel of Mark so far to this point, there's a lot we've learned. you, you would have learned about Jesus. You would have learned that he's the God-man. Uh, we would have learned that he's a king. 
We learn that he can do miracles. He's already cast out a demon. He's healed a leper. He's calmed a storm with his words. There's a lot that he could do. And even today in this passage, we see his divine nature. But what I want you to see is something that's meant to give you hope. Hope in light of what's happening in your life right now. Hope in whatever trial, whatever sin, whatever difficulty you're facing I want you to find hope in Jesus, and particularly today, Jesus as a shepherd. Jesus as the shepherd of his people. We know Psalm 23. I read it at a funeral that I did this week. The Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus, being God, is a shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter, referring to elders as under-shepherds, calls Jesus the great shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. We sing songs on Sunday morning. We sing songs like the king of love my shepherd is or savior like a shepherd lead us. And what I want you to see this morning is how Jesus is able to shepherd his people even when life is brutal, especially when life is difficult. What makes Jesus a shepherd that cares for us. If you're a Christian, how do I know that Jesus is caring for me? If you're not a Christian, how can I know I could trust my life to this person? Well, it's because of who Jesus is. And we're going to see three things about him this morning that makes it clear he is a good shepherd who always does what's best for his people. So let's look first, three things. First is this, I want you to see this morning his compassion. I want you to see Jesus's compassion. Let's look at the context. Jesus's disciples had been busy. He had sent them out as ministers to teach the word and to do miracles. We see in verses 7 to 13, he had sent out the 12 apostles and they had done work. He he sent them to do ministry. Verse 13, they cast out demons, anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Um, they're, They're busy. And even in the midst of this, you also read Verse there, you see a chunk in your Bible there, verses 14 to 29, the story of the death of John the Baptist, that the forerunner of Christ had been put to death by Herod. And so you've got them that they are worn out physically, and possibly they're worn out emotionally. Now, we all like to talk about how busy we are. High schooler, hey, talk to me, what's happened in your life? Oh man, I am so busy with homework. And that just doesn't change. You always will have a chance to talk about how busy you were. But, but sometimes you become suspect of your third grade little brother that says life is so busy. And you're like, how did that even happen? And, and so you might think, well, Josh, you're saying they're busy. Are they busy? Well, let's, let's take a look. It says that they didn't even have time to eat, verse 31. Many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They couldn't even grab a bite. The crowds are so large, and they're coming all the time. And so what do they do? They decide, let's get away. Okay, let's have a little bit of retreat time. Jesus and the 12, we're going to hop in a boat. We're going to go away to a desolate place. Or, you know, this is like them. We're going to go up to the mountains or get some time to relax, to refresh, maybe to debrief about the ministry I just sent you on. They were promised seclusion. Now, you know, there's, there's nothing more difficult than when you just headed out on vacation and then the phone rings, Right? And it's one of those phone calls. It's like, oh, we're going to have to be on the phone for a while, right? It's, it's hard. It's, it interrupts the flow of things. And yet, that's exactly what happened, right? Verse 33, all the people are like, oh, Jesus is going to a desolate place. Let's all get there before him. 
He would love that. And so they do, verse 33, they ran around faster than the boat. And verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd right there. You get a break, more work to be done waiting for you. How would you react in that situation? You're probably not thrilled, right, to think, I just got done with the semester. And then your AP teacher goes, here's some homework for winter break. And you're like, oh, I'm not allowed to murder. But dude, what? Like, right? I, I just thought I had a break and now it's, now there's more going on. What happens here? This is a really interesting passage. We know how we would have reacted, but how does Christ react? It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd how did jesus view these people he did not view them as a nuisance he did not view them as an eruption he didn't view them as an obstacle that just got it got added to his to-do list Now, the first thing he saw about them is that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were people who were hurting. You've read about the Pharisees before. You know, we always think, man, the Pharisees are are really nasty guys in the New Testament, right? Because they're self-righteous. And it says they put burdens on people that they themselves cannot carry. And they make sure that they always try to measure up And the Pharisees love the reality that others don't measure up. You see that in that famous parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector, right? Uh, Thank you, I'm not like this tax collector, but I'm better than them. That's the Pharisees. But these are the people who would have been under them. These are the people who would have been reminded that they need to do better, that they need to work harder, that they had no true spiritual leadership, you always think about people in other religions who are told you got to work harder, do better. How do those people ever know if God loves them and if they're ever really going to heaven? Jesus sees these people and they are not an annoyance. They are not a nuisance, an interruption. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And he feels, it says, compassion for them. That is that he felt in his inside, an affection for them. He was moved to pity. It wasn't just sadness that they were there. He was sad for them, sad with them. And what does Jesus do? He, doesn't, uh, he, he starts caring for them by providing what they don't have. It says he starts teaching them. He began to teach them many things. He does ministry again. He serves them again. And it's what is most amazing about this, how Jesus is so unlike us, is that he doesn't get frustrated, but he feels for them. Now, the disciples do not, we're not quite sure if they feel the exact same way. But even Jesus here, he, he starts thinking about their, their needs. He, we'll see in a second, he cares about their physical needs. He cares about them having food. But again, what you marvel at in this passage, when you think about who Jesus is, is Jesus someone who feels compassion for people, even if it interrupts his flow of life. I think that's a good lesson for us. I think it's a good lesson for every Christian. I know some of you students, you have desire, like, man, I want to serve in the church. I, I want to be useful. I want to be involved. I know uh, for the staff, you have a great group of volunteers who sacrifice a lot and want to be involved so that they could disciple you and influence you. 
I know that our elders do a ton for our church. You know what's really hard sometimes for people that are serving in spiritual leadership? is to remember that it's not about serving when it's convenient, but it's about seeing others and caring for others and loving them. Ministry is always people-oriented and sacrificial. And here you see Jesus caring more about others than caring about himself. What do we have here with Jesus? We have the God of the universe who has taken on human flesh, who shows compassion for others. Is that your view of God? We sometimes have this idea, again, that God, the Father, is kind of angry and nasty, and Jesus is like his cooler, more chill son. But what does Jesus say in 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 the Gospel of John? Thomas will say to him, show us the Father. And Jesus will say, what? Have you not been with me long enough? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What you see here in Christ is modeling the very heart of compassion that his heavenly Father has. This is his heart, ready, as a shepherd. This is how Jesus cares for his people. This is how God cares for his people. Let me, uh, let me show you some other verses that say this. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 reads, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. So what does Peter say? That's 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. What does Peter say? Humble yourself by in prayer casting your cares upon him. Why? Why do we pray that way to him? Because he cares for you. And not just in a factual way like you're supposed to say, like, no, I do care for you. But he deeply, affectionately cares for his people. That's true of God the Father. And that is clearly true of Jesus Christ the Son. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says this, speaks of Jesus as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not, this is again Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest in Jesus who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now think about that verse. The next time you're going through something and you think, man, nobody understands this and nobody can do anything about what's happening in my life. And then you have Jesus. And what does it say about Christ? That first of all, he sympathizes. He sympathizes with our weakness because being a man himself, he was tempted in every way. So he not only knows your struggle, knows your trial, he feels for his children and he can actually help. You can come to him boldly, not thinking that you're an interruption on his schedule, but knowing that he cares for you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. That's good news. Isn't that such good news for the care that we can have? Now, we know that God loves us. You've sang about God loving you. You've sang about Jesus loves you. You One of the first songs you learned as a kid was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I want to remind you of that because we don't always, as Christians, 
feel loved by God in this way. So when I was in high school, there was this ancient website that existed called MySpace. None of you know what MySpace, none of, none of you had a MySpace, I don't think, unless like, is MySpace still even around? I think like it's like a music, it's like music now, that's about it, yeah, yeah, MySpace, so, so possessive, MySpace, and MySpace existed, and eventually MySpace, there was something new called Facebook, and then there was Instagram, and now Twitter, and TikTok, and you know, Discord, where I've only heard lovely things about, um, no, it's terrible, get off that thing. And in the midst of all of that, there was something that was invented that changed social media forever. It was, it was a very simple invention. That, the like button on Facebook or in Instagram, it was the heart button. And then not only could you learn how to count likes or loves, you began to be able to count views and different ways that, that whatever you posted was shared. And what happened was, oh, more people like what I'm doing, it must be, uh, I must be getting more approval. That picture didn't get as many likes. That comment didn't get as many likes. That video didn't get as many views. I need to do better. And what happened was we started basing our approval of ourselves based on our performance and how others approved of our performance. And in doing that, here's what we've, some of us have done. We've started thinking, well, that's the way it works with God too. God really, really loves me when I'm doing well, and he must be really, really upset or bored or uninterested in me when I'm not performing well. And so because I've had difficulty with sin this week, God must be frustrated that God, does he love me? Well, kind of, but he loves some future version of me better than the me that I am right now. And that's just not true in Christ. In Christ, he loves us as his children. He's grieved by our sin, but he still loves us according to the gospel of John with all the same affection he has for Christ and therefore still has this sort of compassion on us. John 16, 27 says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Students, this is the compassion that's always available to us. Wouldn't it be weird if someone only had compassion on people that earned compassion? Like, that's not the definition of compassion. That's what a boss does with a paycheck. No, no, compassion is for people that are hurt and struggling and fearful. God has compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on them. That's why he says in Matthew 11, 20 to 30, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I wonder in your difficulty with sin or in the trials in life, if you're maybe apprehensive to go to Jesus because you think he's going to tell you to get over it. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, humble in heart, which means we can go to him knowing we will receive compassion, the compassion of a friend, the compassion of the greatest friend. That's what we find in Christ. We sing that song in church sometimes, that song, what a friend we have in Jesus. Let me read two of those verses. It says, what a friend we have in Jesus. 
all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Verse 4 of that song goes, Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Why can you trust Jesus in life? Because as your good shepherd? Well, because he's full of compassion. That's in all though. Number two, here's what else we see in this passage. We see his provision. We see his provision. The disciples bring up a problem in this passage. There is not enough food. Verse 35, this is a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to get some grub. Now, this is a huge need. We read at the end, there's 5,000 men, and that might just be a count of the men. So there surely would then be women and children as well. This is big. This is, uh, this is a bigger issue than those poor McDonald's workers that we bombard on the way to Regen. You know what I'm talking about? We roll up with our eight buses. We think those people are going to die. Uh, we're going to crush them right now. Well, we called them a couple of months in advance, and then a week in advance, and then an hour in advance. They at least have a heads up. This is a larger crowd with a lot less warning. They don't have food and so maybe the disciples bring this up as a tactic to get away. Remember, they thought they were going to have like a spa day in the desert of some sort. And, uh, and what does Jesus tell them? He says, you give them something to eat. We don't, we don't have money. What, are we going to spend 200 bucks on that? What, what are we going to, that's like a half year's salary. You think we're going to do that? Well, no. Uh, the, you give them something to eat, though. So what do we do? And so what happens here? What happens in this passage is that Jesus, it says, he had them, verse 40, sit down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves, two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing. And it simply says he just what? He gave them to the disciples. And he divided the fish. I remember seeing a movie uh, that was like a, you know, a reenactment of the New Testament. It was something like they had all these empty baskets and then Jesus prayed, and they opened it up, and his music, like, oh, look, all the baskets are full. That's, we don't know if that's how it happened. What it seems like happened is Jesus just started going like, okay, well, here's some bread. And here, here's some bread. And, here's, and he's just like, just where are they coming? Like, they're up his sleeve. He's just pulling them out of nowhere. What is going on here? Like, it's this, like, amazing thing that's just kind of, like, given a little bit of detail. And here's what you need to know what Jesus is doing. He's creating bread out of nothing. He's creating it just like the world was created out of nothing. The, the term people use is ex nihilo, out of nothing. So is Jesus. He's just creating bread. And this is not like a superhero. This is not some sort of Harry Potter magic trick. This is real. This happened. This is the power he has. We've seen already he has power to stop a storm, that he controls creation with a word. But now you see that Jesus actually has power to create let me ask you, do you know how hard it is to make bread? How many of you have ever made bread at home before? It's a new thing. You know, it's, it's, it's fancy. I, I, have a, I have a book I brought from home. It's called The Bread Bible. Right there, The Bread Bible. I, I bought this for Katie a few years ago. I'm always really, really thoughtful with whatever presents I get Katie because I try to think, what is something that she would like and then what sort of hobby would she like that would also bless me? And this has brought great, great blessing into my life. Uh, the bread Bible. Bread is hard to make. Let me read like, the first chapter of this book. It's called The Ten Essential Steps 
of bread making. This is why some of you just settle for Wonder Bread. You're like, I'm just going to go buy it. I don't have time. Step one, fermenting and pre-fermenting. There you go. Step two, mixing and kneading. That's not N-E-E, I need bread. That's like K-N-E-A-D-I-N-G. Kneading, raising, also known as proofing, turning the dough. Step four, dividing and pre-shaping the dough. Step five, shaping the dough. Step six, slashing or scoring and stenciling. Step seven, glazing. Step eight, baking. Step nine, cooling. Step 10, slicing and storing. They have a step for that as well. How many of you know what all of those terms mean? You know this. Yeah, shout out to the bread people. Well done. If you have extra sourdough that you made this holiday season, by the way, the Petrus... No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) Bread is hard to make. You need to get water and flour and then get yeast together. And then you need to let the, the yeast develop. And then you need to introduce more yeast and then salt. And then you need it. And then you develop it and you let it rise. I'm reading these. I don't have this memorized. But there's a lot going on. And back then, they used to have to mill the grain. they take a stone and they, they didn't have all this stuff available at the store. Bread takes a while to make. It would have taken even longer for them. But Jesus just produces bread right here sustenance, what you need to live off of. And, and it wasn't just he made a little bit. He made enough to feed 5,000. Enough, in verse 42, it says, until they were all satisfied. Think Thanksgiving probably didn't need that second helping of sweet potato casserole satisfied. That's where they are. They have more than enough food. And then there's 12 baskets left over an abundance of resources. What does this point to? This is point to Jesus as the creator. You knew that if you've grown up in church. Jesus is God. Jesus, according to Colossians 1, everything came into being through him. But think about it again in light of what we're looking at as Jesus as shepherd. Jesus feels compassion for people in need. He knows your need, but he doesn't just feel compassion. He has the power to provide for his sheep. He has the ability to give you what you need in abundance, to leave you satisfied. He is the only one that could satisfy our souls. And what you hear is have some divine math. You have divine compassion meets divine power, which leads to divine provision provides all that his people need. Now let's take that again in light of trials. What do we sing? Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. He gives us what we need. It's not again just that Jesus cares. It's that he is able to care for our needs. You've heard me share that before. There's plenty of people in your life that care about you, that can't actually fix your problems. And there's plenty of people in the world that can fix your problems. They just don't really care about you. But in Jesus Christ, you have both. Both of those together. Again, this is just a picture of who God is. Matthew 6, 7, and 8 says, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that nice to know that before we even go to God in prayer to pray about what happens after I graduate? What happens with this tension in this relationship? 
What about this sin in my life? God knows what you need even before you ask him. Matthew 6, 31, Jesus says this, Do not worry then saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. He will provide for your needs. That's what it's like having Jesus as your shepherd. You know he will provide. Application of that is really simple. We should not be anxious. We should not worry. Let me give you an illustration of what worry looks like. Some of you have been driving before with your family. And you're in the back seat. One parent is driving. One parent is in the front passenger seat. We won't, we won't assign which parent is where for the sake of the illustration. And somewhere up ahead, someone has tapped the brakes and a brake light has come on. And the parent in the passenger seat has gone (gasps) and ripped the handle off the roof of the car in fear. And the parent driving is like, why are you screaming? They're 70 yards away. And on the other side of the freeway going northbound. Like... It's nowhere even close. Why the panic? You've been there. Oh, again, I won't identify who is who, but let the reader understand. And it's a sort of front seat driving. There's also a sort of back seat driving. Some of you have been there where someone from the back seat's always like, oh, you want to get over here? Over here. Yeah, hey, we're getting off on the off ramp up there. Like, yeah, I know. It's five miles away. Like, well, I'm not getting now, but I'm, I'm aware. I have ways. Anyway. What does front seat driving and back seat driving show? It shows a distrust in the driver. The same is true for worry. When we worry, when we're anxious, when we can't sleep because of a trial in our life, when we're we're not really sure how things are going to turn out and we're in turmoil over that, it shows a lack of trust in the shepherd. It shows that either you don't think that he cares or you don't think he's able to solve your problem. You need to instead trust and know that he will take care of everything exactly how you need. That doesn't necessarily mean everything's going to go well. This shepherd's about to send his disciples into a storm, but he's still the shepherd, and they're exactly where he wants them to be. They're exactly in the best position, and he does the same for us as well. Jesus will always care for us as he sees best. You know how you know that, by the way? How can I know that? The Bible's full of all sorts of things that Jesus provides for us. He provides for our needs. He provides for bread. We see in Ephesians chapter 4 that he actually provides for leaders that help you grow. It says in Romans and in Hebrews that Jesus is praying for you. Here we see Jesus giving bread. And yet later, as we talked about in communion this morning, he says, this bread is my body, what? Given for you. You know how you could trust Jesus to do what's best for you? It's because Jesus is already taking care of your biggest problem in giving his life for your sin. Oh, student, if your sins are forgiven, like you, you absolutely can trust him, right? Romans 8, 32, for he who did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also give us all things? 
Right? How, how can we worry if our sins are even paid for, that he's not going to take care of lesser needs? Student, if you're not in Christ, how can you have any peace if your sins aren't paid for? If God hasn't taken care of your sin problem yet, if your sin problem hasn't been dealt with yet, then how do you have any assurance that things are going to go well? Romans 8.28 says, you know, all things work for good to those who love him. You have all sorts of reason for worry and anxiety and turmoil in your soul if your sins have not been paid for. And yet this Christmas, you can have hope and you can have peace because Christ came down to pay for your sin. And if you trust him, he will take care of that debt of sin that you owe. That's the kind of peace and the kind of shepherd that you can know. And that's how we know that we can trust him and and have hope in him and not worry and even tell others about him because we're not trying to turn them on to some sort of program that doesn't work. We're pointing them to a person who can be trusted. That's how we could trust the shepherd in dark times. Again, how do we trust Christ as our shepherd? How can we do that? Well, we know he has compassion. We know that he has power. Thirdly, I want you to see this. I want you to see his matchless glory. We've seen his compassion. We've seen his power. Let's see his matchless glory. He sends the disciples uh, out, verse 45. He made his disciples get in the boat and go to the other side. So they just rowed over. They're going to row back. This is after they thought they were going on a break. So again, this is, this is kind of funny for the disciples there. Uh, and it says that they're making headway, verse 48. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. The word there is they're straining. So now it's, it's strong. It's not like the storm that Jesus called where they think they're going to die, but they're working hard. And it says that they've gone about three or four, John 6 says they've gone about three or four miles out at this point. This is at the fourth watch, it says, verse 48 again, about the fourth watch of the night. So that's between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's late, and they're rowing, and they're being tossed about, and they're not really making headway as it goes, and yet they're having to work hard. That's a good illustration of our trials. Sometimes life feels like that. And what happens? Jesus again comes to rescue them. Jesus was, though not physically there with them at first, keenly aware of all that was happening in their life. And he comes walking, it says, verse 48, on the sea. The fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now again, we've, we've got to get Marvel and, and movies out of our head here. You got to think this happens. So the, the person that I pray to, I pray to God, and when I speak to Christ, I think this is a real person with flesh and blood who died for my sins, who did this, who walking on the sea. What, what is that? You don't just go, oh, cool, sweet cinematography. If you're thinking Old Testament, this is very much another claim to Jesus' deity. Listen, I'll give you two verses. You could jot these down. Job 38, 16. It's the first one. Job 38, 16 says, Have you, this is God speaking to Job, have you entered in the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? That's Job 38, 16. The idea of, I have done this. I have walked about the sea. Have you done that? Job, no, because he is not God. Only God could do that. Here's another one, Psalm 77, 19. Psalm 77, 19. Your way was in the sea, your paths in the mighty waters, and your footprints may not be known. That is the idea again, Psalm 77, 19. The idea of it is God who walks on the sea. 
And here you have Christ doing only what God can do. A picture, again, of his power that he's walking on the sea. That's not all that we see here. It says that he meant to pass by them. Now, what could that mean? That, that could mean that he meant to just like whoosh, hoof it. And then they get to the other side and be like, good morning. Like, what? That's crazy. But what does that mean? Well, where else? Where else in the Old Testament again do you have the idea of God passing by? Well, if you were with us last year, which is pretty much most of you except the freshmen, you were there, and I think the freshmen, you were here for this when we looked at the book of Exodus, verses or chapters 32 to 34. That Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, well, you can't behold my glory, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will allow my glory to pass by. There's a similar scene in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah that God is going to pass by. He's going to allow you to see some of his glory as he passes by. And what Christ is doing here is he wants them as he passes by to, to not just know, hey, turns out Jesus' buoyancy is unlike ours. That's not what he wants them to get out of this. He wants them to behold his glory, to realize this is not like someone they've met before. And they get it, right? Because verse 51 says, he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. They are blown away by this, realizing this is someone who is not like us. We've seen some tricks. This is different. Now, what were they supposed to get? Verse 52 says they did not quite understand yet. We understand that as we go into chapter 7 and 8, their eyes become open. This, this leads up to chapter 8 where they eventually say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They begin to understand who Jesus is as the God-man. But what else does he say here? Look at that again. Verse 50 tells them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now again, I, I want to not worry in the midst of trials. How do I not do that? How do I take heart and how do I not be afraid? Look at that there in your Bible. In the middle of it, it's, it's understanding that it is I. Ego a me in the Greek. It's the same phrase that we understood in the book of Exodus of I am. It's Christ's claim to deity. He's like, I'm not just a superman or a super prophet. I am God of very gods. And so look at my brilliance. Look at my greatness. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I am. Students, what we need when life gets really hard is not explanation or assurance that everything's going to be okay. We sometimes get explanation. In Christ, we do get assurance that everything's going to be okay. But what you most need when life is tough is a big view of who Christ is, a brilliant radiant, astounding view of Christ. And so that as you see him in his glory, as your shepherd who cares for you and has power, and yet he's, he's more than just a, a caring super doctor, he's God of very gods, you can take heart. You can have 
courage. You do not have to be afraid. Psalm 34 says this, verse 9 and 10, Psalm 34. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints. Fear him, that is to tremble, to behold his greatness and to to feel the magnitude, be overwhelmed by the greatness of who he is. Fear Yahweh, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. They who seek Yahweh shall not be in want of any good thing. It's seeing the greatness of God that you go, Lord, I do not know how what's, I do not have, know how things are going to unfold over the next few weeks or months or years. But I've seen your compassion. I've seen your power. I've seen the magnitude and glory of who you are. I do not have to fear. I do not have to be afraid. The goal of our trials is to see him as greater so we might trust him in a greater way. When we do that, we know that he is our shepherd. He is the one that we can lean on. Psalm 23, 36 says this, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There was a pastor in the 1800s. He said, he was speaking about how he set out to preach Psalm 23. And as he set out to preach on it, he was thinking about it and meditating on it. One phrase caught in his head. He leadeth me. He leadeth me by still waters. He leads me to green pastures. Pastor says he couldn't get over that fact of, of the divine sovereign and yet the God-man leads us. Isn't that so good to know when you look at Christ that he leads you? Pastor wrote a song, He Leadeth Me. You've heard it before and it's an older song so some of you in high school have gone like, well, this isn't some of the Rock and music I like to listen to. And so while the instrumentalists play, you look at your phone. And because of that, you miss out on some of these amazing lyrics. So listen to what this pastor wrote. I'll read a few verses. This is what it's like to be shepherded by Christ. This is true for you if you're a believer. This is what you're missing out on if you're an unbeliever, just living in the uncertainty that you have chosen. Here's what it's like. It says, He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. Sometimes in scenes of deepest gloom, sometimes where Eden's flowers bloom, by water still or troubled sea, still tis his hand that leadeth me. Application. Lord, I would place my hand in thine. Never murmur nor repine, content Whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. Here's the chorus. He leadeth me, he leadeth me. By his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be. For by his hand he leadeth me. He has made you his own by the cross. He is the good shepherd. He will lead you well. So let us... Be faithful. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son. Oh, it is, as we said earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus and how good it is to trust him and know of his compassion and his, his limitless power, to know of his divine glory. Lord, I, I pray that we would be 
faithfully following you because we know of your care in our lives. Uh, We know uh, how you ultimately, Lord, lead us to all things good, that no good thing you withhold from those who walk uprightly. Lord, I pray for students here who do not know you, that are dealing with uncertainty because there's nowhere to anchor their hope. Christ, you know their sins. You offer forgiveness and you offer your compassion and shepherding care for all of their life. Pray that someone come to trust you because of that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.